Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Today, we're going to actually do the last section, and this is where we're going to start to bring in some of those self-talk techniques and those other calming techniques that will help us when we're somatic tracking. And so just to review, so what is somatic tracking? And if uh, I've been using the reference from uh, Alan Gord's book, Chronic Pain and the Way Out, and somatic tracking is just a form of mindfulness. And if you're going to try this technique, it's important that you don't do it when you're experiencing high intensity pain. So remember, this is where the brain is feeling a lot of danger. Here is where we want to use calming techniques and we want to use some of these self-talk techniques that I'm going to talk about to dial down that fear, pain, protect pathway that your brain is in. So somatic tracking or mindfulness really should be done when pain is moderate to low. And this is often when the brain is more tolerable to the pain that it's experiencing. What's important when you're somatic tracking is that you're not trying to make pain go away. You're just trying to reinforce that the pain that they're experiencing is not dangerous. And just to remind us that mindfulness is a form of awareness. And what we're doing is we're trying to get that hijacked amygdala, which is on automatic, unconscious, and habitual control and shift our awareness to the conscious part of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. So the other thing I just want to mention, and I was just thinking about this as we're going through this, it's not uncommon when you start to explore some of these that you get a significant pain flare-up. And Alan Gordon talks about this in his book. And I think the reason why is that the brain doesn't like to give up or change certain habits and behaviors that it's developed to get through the day. Because you remember, from our brain's perspective, this is really about survival and protection. So when we start to challenge coping strategies that are actually getting us through the day, but may not be getting us to where we need to be in our life, meaning that we want to look at long-term goals, that these are things that are just getting us through the moment, it can be really scary and very hard to change that. So if you are getting a flare-up as we're going through this, please, please, please be patient with yourself and just focus in on those calming techniques and using some of the self-talk techniques that we'll talk about. This will get better. It's really important that you know that you've been down that road before. And even though the pain that you are experiencing can be intense, it doesn't mean danger and it doesn't mean that there's damage being caused to your body. When we talk about that mindfulness piece, so that you're increasing your conscious awareness of your back pain, for instance, what we want to do is send messages to our body of safety. So how do you promote feelings of safety? Well, the first step, as mentioned, is that we have to recognize that our neuroplastic pain is not dangerous, even though it feels dangerous. The neuroplastic pain we are experiencing is not causing damage, even though it feels like it's causing damages. So why is this message of safety so important? Is that when the brain believes that there is something wrong with our body, it responds with pain, right? That's our internal alarm system. So as long as it feels that something damaging is happening or that there's something dangerous happening, you will get pain. That's just how we're hardwired. So that's why you have pain. So if you are open to embracing a different message that their brain has that your brain has made a mistake and that your body is fine, 
then that can start to actually unlink or uncouple this danger-pain connection that has happened within your amygdala. It can actually dial down the amygdala and dial down the threat. And there's lots of evidence that shows this. But you have to be in a place where it feels safe to do this, right? So if you're not there, that's okay. I think just thinking about the possibility that this is something that could help, I think would be huge. How you get these messages of safety, you first have to challenge your fear talk and your fear thoughts. So what are these? These are the things that we do when we go down the rabbit hole, right? We all do it. So it's the worst case scenario thinking, right? It's that foreboding joy that I didn't really realize was actually a thing. I could find myself doing this all the time. And this is often the scenario where, you know, you're feeling really good about things. It seems like your kids are doing really well. But then the next thing your brain is taking you down to like a major car accident and somebody's been killed and it's like, oh my God, it's just a horrible place to be. There's actually a name for that. It's called foreboding joy. And if you ever want to read some really interesting stuff on this, Dr. Brene Brown, who is a social worker, writes some beautiful stuff in around shame, in around sort of just in terms of looking at some of these these habits and behaviors that we get into that most times we don't even know we're doing, but how they can pull us down and then how, how they can help pull us back out again. So the worst case scenario thinking is also important. And this is where we say, what if that pain doesn't go away? What if it gets worse? What if I'm in a wheelchair? What if I'm in uh, a nursing home? What if I can't take care of my family? What if I can't work? I mean, we've all seen how it goes, right? So one way to, to challenge this is to reverse that negative with a positive. So sometimes you have to write these down because if you start writing down your self-talk, then you can actually challenge it. Because sometimes I don't, I don't, it's so automatic and so habitual sometimes that we don't even know we're doing it. So by writing it down, we can actually increase our awareness. So what if you said, well, what if the pain does go away? What if it gets better? Or even if it gets worse, you know what? I've got this. I can do this. I've, I've been here before. I can get my pain down to a better level. You can also get yourself to use something called uh, self-talk affirmations. So these are really common in lots of different therapies. So you need to build a list. And what that'll do is actually build resiliency. So when you're doing that mindfulness, you know, that check-in, that somatic tracking, what you're going to do is you're going to actually use phrases that help build resiliency. So this is your self-talk piece. So these are called affirmations. And the important thing is to do them. And there's lots of science that shows this actually, even if you don't believe it, right? So first, when you're doing it, you're like, this is the dumbest thing I could be ever I could ever be doing. But in fact, what happens is you start to notice a change in how your body is feeling. And that's often reflective in the chemistry that your body's using, like that stress chemistry or that alarm chemistry. So even if you don't believe the self-talk, it's important to practice it because eventually maybe you might believe it. The one I use all the time is I've got this. So when I'm feeling really overwhelmed, I tell myself that I've got this. I've been down this road before. I've got this. And it's amazing how it just calms everything down. I look at these uh, Olympic athletes as well, and I think, what are they saying to themselves? They use all these techniques all the time, right? So it's really about kind of getting yourself out of that uh, unconscious, habitual 
rabbit hole and then using that conscious part of your brain to bring you to that place of calm. I've got this. I am a survivor. I am resilient. So these are just some of the things that Alan Gordon lists, but you've got to find your own affirmations that are going to work. I'm safe and my body is fine. My brain thinks it's in danger, but it's a false alarm. Trust the process. These are some of the affirmations that they use in the book. Either way, everything will be fine. I am healthy. I am strong. I am not damaged and I'm not afraid of this pain. I will recover. So it makes you feel stronger. If we think about that again, so what you're going to do with the uh, somatic tracking or that form of mindfulness, you're not going to do it intensely. He often he uses the analogy of hawk mode or toto mode. That's kind of an interesting analogy, which is really helpful, meaning that, you know, Toto being the, from the Wizard of Oz, right? That's uh, the, the little dog that kind of exposes the man behind the curtain. And he's not afraid of him, but everybody else is afraid of him. But it was his curiosity. He was just curious. He just wanted to go in there and have a look. Whereas when we think of hawk mode, it's a, with a real intensity. So you don't want hawk mode. You want Toto mode. Or you could even think of Zen mode. If you had to think about applying that somatic tracking, what you want to do is you want to th- make sure that the pain is moderate to low. And what you want to do is you want to allow yourself to experience the pain. And so this is where sometimes you actually have to provoke the pain, right? And this really, so people who live with chronic pain are often very good at calming techniques. So in order to do somatic tracking though, and Alan Gordon talks about this, is you have to be able to provoke your pain. That can be a scary prospect. So if that is too much, then just practice your mindfulness. Just like right now, we've got a terrible storm happening in Nova Scotia. So I can pay attention to the rain and the wind and not pay attention to anything else. Or if I'm listening just to birds, right? That's mindfulness. I'm taking myself out of my amygdala or my limbic system. And I'm just paying attention to the things around me without any kind of energy or, or commitment. Or, I'm, just, I'm just doing it, right? I'm just being there. So it's a form of awareness. So if you are a healthcare provider and you're thinking about how do I even apply this to my office? So I'm just going to kind of give you a framework that what might be helpful uh, for the patient when you're trying to bring in some of these techniques. What you can do in the first office visit, and so trying to do this in 15 minutes or less can be hard, but there are ways to do it. What's important before the patient comes into the clinic visit, always review their investigations, just so that you have a handle on what's being done and what has been done, because this will often come up in conversations. And I, I really feel that the comment that the investigations are normal are really discouraging to patients. They really need to be able to go through that and have us explain some of the things that are being pointed out in those x-rays or those blood, that blood work because how they're interpreting it is from a layperson perspective and it can be really scary for them. You always want to use language that minimizes fear and uncertainty in the office visit. We talked about that. And we also want to make sure that we're listening to their pain story today because you want to make sure that there is nothing new happening in their tissue or any progression of a pre-existing condition. That doesn't mean that I order a bunch of tests. I just really need to take a very good history uh, and determine is this structural pain or neuroplastic. And by far the most important thing, regardless if it's structural or neuroplastic, believe them. What they're telling you about their pain is real. 
doesn't matter if it's structural or neuroplastic, and I can't emphasize that enough. What they feel is real. It doesn't always mean dangerous or bad. You want to make sure that you're examining them so you're looking for anything new in their tissue. It's very easy sometimes to miss things. So I always like to lay my hands on the patient just to make sure that there's nothing new happening in their tissue. I always try to avoid repeat investigation if I don't find anything new because this can be really discouraging to the patient and really creates a high alert trigger situation. We all know that there are things that can get picked up in investigations that have nothing to do with the patient's pain. But what they do is they create this high alert situation. So in medicine, we call these vomit syndromes, right? Victim of modern intervention technology. So one test leads to another test leads to another test. Or one consult leads to another consult leads to another consult. So it just gets so confusing for the patient. And they really have no way of consolidating the information. So primary care practitioners are the quarterbacks. They really pull in all of this information. And it would be nice eventually for all of us to get on the same board around the, the language that we use so that we can have some consistency for patients. The other thing that you want to point out is that you want to try and stabilize factors that may be aggravating the patient's neuroplastic pain, such as short-acting pharmacology, right? So this is the short-acting opiate analgesics, and this can be really hard to do. But unfortunately, what short-acting opiates do is they keep the brain in a high-alert situation. And I'll, I'll try and explain that. If that's not an issue, if the patient has no um, short-acting pharmacotherapy, then what you can do is start an evidence list for the patient to, to separate out their structural pain and neuroplastic pain. You can also make a recommendation uh, for that podcast that I talked about, and that is the Science Versus podcast, October the 29th chronic pain, can our brain fix it? And this is where the interview happened with Alan Gordon, as well as uh, Dr. Hashimi from Dalhousie, where they are talking about the uh, shift in where pain processing happens. And they also interview a young man who works with Science Versus who has chronic pain. So that may be a really good time to get them to start exploring some of this other therapy that is out there. And I think it's really important is to put it into context in terms of the multi-dimensions, right? So we don't want patients to think that we're just focusing on psychological therapies. We're focusing on all kinds of therapies. So they need to see that this is just one tool in their toolbox. And they may not be ready to engage in that, and that's okay. It's, it's ultimately their journey. So, But I just want to come back to stabilizing short-acting opiate use because it's really important. This can, even the thought of doing this can actually cause a pain flare-up for the patient because it's really tough for them to do because on many levels they have found a tool that has worked and that tool has been endorsed by the healthcare system. What they need to be able to recognize is that short-acting opioids will actually keep their brain in a high-intensity pain. And why that is, it's not because of the patient, it's the nature of the opioid, right? So 100% of people who get put on an opioid will develop tolerance. 100% of people who get put on an opioid will develop dependency. So what that means is that if I pull that drug away, they will experience withdrawal. So withdrawal to the patient who is experiencing pain is an increase in their pain. Tolerance means that they're going to lose the effectiveness of that medication. So it's great to have a conversation initially when you're, ha when you're talking to patients about short-acting opioids is asking them how it helps them. 
The conversation I often start with is, you're using your medication for pain. Does the medication do anything else for you? So there are some individuals who will get an energy boost from the medication. And this is really common with oxycodone. Not everybody gets it. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the patient has a substance use disorder at all. It just means that the way that this medication impacts their brain is important. So that when I have that conversation, I usually lay out pain and I usually lay out energy. So when I talk about the behavior of the opioid, what I'm actually saying is that 100% of people when they take an opioid will develop tolerance. So if you're using that medication for pain, what that means is that you need to take more in order to get pain relief. And if you're using that medication to help you with energy, you're gonna use that medication more to, to get that energy boost. And as you're experiencing withdrawal, what you're gonna get is worsening pain and more depression, or you're gonna feel like a piece of poop. You don't have any energy. That is just about the opioid. It has nothing to do with the patient. It's looking at the effect of the opioid on their brain. So the withdrawal-mediated pain is really driving that high intensity. They could also have opiate-induced hyperalgesia, right, which could be driving their high intensity. And this is when they can get um, total body pain. It's really hard in patients with chronic pain because they can get multiple areas of pain. And so when I think about my palliative care hat, how opiate-induced hyperalgesia often presents is that total body pain, but also the change in where they normally feel pain. But this is something that normally can happen with neuroplastic pain. The other thing that short-acting opiates will do is disrupt their sleep, right? And that's the withdrawal-mediated aspect of it. This is often where the benzo comes in, and this can be really problematic. So when we start combining opiate analgesics with uh, benzodiazepines, then we increase the risk of the patient developing major complications like uh, sleep ap central sleep apnea. Uh, we can get into respiratory depression. We can get into some endocrine abnormalities, right, especially with the opiates over the long term. And if you think about it, short-acting opioids were never meant to be used long-term, right? I mean, and I use the analogy of the palliative care patient because if I keep somebody on short-acting opioids and I'm trying to manage their pain, it's really not good pain management. And it's terrible for a patient who's living with a life-limiting illness. But for patients who have been prescribed and are using opioids in a short-acting form, uh, especially for chronic pain or neuroplastic pain, it's really hard to change. Uh, so we have to be very patient, and uh, we actually have to help the patient understand why it's important. So we have to remind ourselves that we're the ones that gave them the tool in the first place, so it's not their fault that their opiate needs have gone up. The first step when you address their opiate is that you want to make sure that they're using what is being prescribed. And this is where we need to bring in either pill counts or urine drug screening. And this is always hard to do because often the patient thinks that this is something that we're doing because we don't believe them. And what I always tell patients is the reason we have to do this is that we have to keep you and the community safe. You know, would I give a patient uh, Coumadin or Warfarin without doing an INR? Of course not. So when you're really prescribing high-risk pharmacotherapy, we need to have that label of safety. So actually, we want to build in that communication, even if we're giving a patient an opiate trial, right? So patients need to know what to expect when they're on these trials to keep them safe and the community safe. Now, they can be really tricky to interpret. 
So this is where reaching out to individuals that may be able to help, and this is where the Atlantic Mentorship Network can come in. And I'll put a link to the Mentorship Network on all of these uh, podcasts because I am starting to work with them around other podcasts that we can bring to uh, to the forefront to discuss some really interesting topics that are happening. So the next step after we describe or once we determine if the patient is using what's being prescribed or determining how they're using it, there are about probably about six different areas that we want to address. And I can't go through that, but I can do that in a separate podcast. But if the patient is a legacy patient, so a legacy patient is someone that's been using these opiates for a long time, then the chances of tapering, unless they're really motivated, is very low. Ideally, you want to get them to uh, less than a 200 milligram morphine equivalent. And we still want to ensure that we're using safe prescribing practices, right? So the urine drug screening, the pill counts, all those things still need to come into practice. I tend to want to limit the quantity of of, uh, pills that they have with each prescription because of tolerance. So it's not uncommon for patients to double up their medication because they're trying to get relief. So we have to really provide some tight oversight there. So the patient may also be a failed opiate trial. So you may have given them a trial and they got into that 50 to 90 milligram morphine equivalent and they're just not getting any relief. So those patients you want to taper. Obviously it's not a tool that works for them. Opiate-induced hyperalgesia requires a taper or an opiate rotation. You're probably going to need to reach out. And the Atlantic Mentorship Network does have access to colleagues that can help you. I am also a member of that group. So I'm always happy to help clinicians sort of manage uh, really complex rotations. Uh, We do this all the time in our palliative care uh, hat as well. So the patient experiencing withdrawal-mediated pain, then you want to introduce the long-acting um, so that, or they may need an opiate rotation. If the patient has an opiate use disorder, that is a life-threatening complication of their opiate use. You cannot cut that patient off. And in fact, what you want to do is either reach out for help, but these patients need opiate stabilization. And it does have to be in a framework that keeps them safe. So this is often an addiction framework, which can be very stigmatizing to patients who are using opiates medically. Opiate use disorders are rather challenging to figure out, just like diversion can be challenging to figure out. But from the patient's perspective, they are just using their medication for their pain. They have a really hard time understanding what an opiate use disorder is and why we would be considering that in their care. But the reason why it requires an action, it's no different than if they're using their warfarin and they get a complication like bleeding. If they develop an opiate use disorder and you can use tools like an opiate wrist tool or the POMI is another tool or the four C's, right? Compulsive use, chronic use, use despite consequences and cravings for use. We need to do a full court press and we need to surround that patient with the help that they need. Uh, And we need to keep them safe and colleagues safe. Often in this group, I'm actually bridging them because many of them are not open to Suboxone or Methadone, but I'm often bridging them with Cadian. And that often will require some help. So don't be afraid to reach out. Diversion is very hard to prove, but it really does put the community at risk. So the other thing that may be happening is that the patient may be struggling with a substance use disorder from another substance, like a benzodiazepine, and may be actually exchanging that medication for a benzodiazepine. The only way we can figure that out is through pill counts and also urine drug screening. 
if the patient, if you're able to show that diversion is happening, then you really need to discontinue that medication. It doesn't happen that often, believe it or not. It's very, very hard to prove. And diversion is not, you know, it's interesting. Healthcare providers tend to take diversion as personal when it's really not about us. It's really about whatever the motivation is for the patient. So this may be about poverty. It may be about, you know, spousal abuse. It may be about child abuse. I mean, the list can go on and on. It doesn't mean that it's okay. It just means that there are often very complex reasons why people will diverse. All right, so that's enough actually for that first visit. But if you have them back in a second visit, like I said, don't be surprised if their pain intensity has increased. What you're going to do is just promote those calming techniques and those messages of safety and those affirmations that they've developed. And you can go through their investigations again. If it's moderate to low, this is where you want to introduce that somatic tracking, right? So I tend not to do it early on in the first visit, but introduce it later on. And um, so remember, this is just a form of mindfulness. And as I mentioned, Headspace has a nice section on pain as well, as well as Ellen Gordon and Alan Zeeth's uh, book, The Way Out, Healing Chronic Pain. All right, I think that's enough on this, but I, it's been really fun, actually. Um, I just find this so fascinating. And I think anything that we can bring to the clinical setting to help patients find calm in their life and find uh, a quality of life back, I, I just so exciting. It is really an exciting time for uh, individuals who are doing lots of therapy and research in this area discovering new treatments for patients. So I think there's a lot to be hopeful for. It is a lot to take in, but it's really important that we kind of go there. I think the major take-home point that I want you to take from this series that we just did is that structural pain and neuroplastic pain are very different. Neuroplastic pain, though, the techniques that we use to um, reboot or rewind the neuroplasticity that's happened can actually benefit structural pain as well. Focus on those third wave psychological therapies is really important. It's recognizing that what is driving the, the fuel that is driving neuroplastic pain is coming from the hijacked amygdala. And it's basically how that part of our brain is interpreting fear. And so anything we can do to help the patient feel that sense of calm is going to be really important. So I think what I'm going to do next week is introduce uh, just sort of a challenge now understanding the principles of these third wave psychotherapies and how we can apply it to actually getting patients active. Part of me wants to challenge how we think about pacing activity. Maybe what we need to be doing is approaching this from a pain reprocessing therapy perspective in terms of how we get people active again. Hope you enjoyed this one and we'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.